uh, 30 years uh, working for the state. Uh, so, but uh, as as I've often said, I had the two best jobs a lawyer could possibly have in in the uh, in Vermont: uh, Attorney General and Chief Justice. And and I just reached a point at, at which I thought, you know, I wanted to make a, a change after uh, 30 years in the law in the uh, Harvard. The opportunity at Harvard came up, so it seemed like a good time to make that transition. But um, you know, I, I loved both jobs. I mean, I certainly, you know, e- each of them were challenging in their own way, and. Uh, you know, if I thought I'd lived to 250, I probably would have done uh, 50 years as Attorney General and 50 years as, as uh, Chief Justice, but it doesn't work that way. So I, I, uh, I, I certainly uh, was lucky enough to um, have the opportunity to contribute in, in both positions and and, uh, and then have the opportunity to go to Harvard. So mm-hmm. um, made sense at the time, and, and, and uh, you know, all in all... Uh, Glad I'm glad I made the change. That would have been a hundred and fifty year retirement if you'd only done yeah, that's two right. jobs for fifty. <laughs> Let me have you put those headphones on there, please. Two four four seventeen seventy seven. Toll free eight seven seven two nine one eighty two fifty five. Let's go to Berlin. Robert, good morning. Uh good morning, Mark. Jeff, it's Robert Appel. Hey, so Jeff, it's great to hear you talk about this. Um as you know, I, I worked for you in your civil rights division before you were appointed and um, I remember meeting with Representative Shelter, which was very interesting on this issue. But, um, I, I, you know, 16 years hindsight, I have to admit my, my error in uh, joining with Denise Johnson's dissent in wishing the court had declared uh, that um, marriage equality was constitutionally required. I, th- I think time has proven your wisdom in your tempered approach. Um, so... My hat's off to you. I look forward to uh, to reading more about your thoughts on the issue. Um, and again, I, I think it's very helpful for you to be out speaking on this. My question to you, as a student of both politics and media, Jeff, are you surprised by the lack of coverage uh, with regard to the United States Supreme Court decision as to Vermont's role? Um, it seems to me that Vermont is sort of forgotten in that whole discussion. Hmm. Uh, I really hadn't thought of it from that point. I, first of all, I just want to uh, say hi to Robin, who is really a tr- uh, great asset to the Office of Attorney General, and, and, uh, and, and uh, it's great to hear for, great to hear from you. Uh, um, uh, you know, I just really hadn't thought of it from the, from the, from that issue. I th- I think uh, from that perspective, uh, I, I do think uh, there were a couple of books out in, prior to. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court decisions that uh, they use the pivot point uh, uh, proposition eight California, and I thought that that surprised me a bit because I think anybody that's familiar with the issue would would back it up long before California got in, became involved. I mean, the, the point in time when which uh, uh, the former Solicitor General and uh, David and, and then David Boyes, the two prominent lawyers, decided to take on the issue, gave it a very high profile. But um, as anyone who was involved, I'm, I'm speaking about the activists now, and the lawyers are involved. I think they would say, "Well, there's a lot going, lot went on before uh, we get to the California Proposition Eight. But I think sort of the me- maybe one of the reasons is I think the media generally is picked up from that point on, and so mm. uh, prior prior to that, that uh, people forget about not forget so much, but uh, pay, pay less attention to uh, uh, certainly Massachusetts and, uh, and, and Vermont as well. Did you think the media coverage, what did you think of the media coverage of the Vermont case when, at the time? 
Uh, I, yeah, I, I don't think I had... Uh, I, I would have to think back. I don't think I thought about it one way or the other. I mean, I think um, probably... Uh, I remember, of course, Chris Graff was uh, hit, uh, at that point uh, still the... Uh, head of Associated Press, and, and his stories had really went out all over the country, so you know, I certainly paid attention to that, but other, other, and thought he did an excellent job in covering uh, both the politics and law of that case. Did you read any of the national media, or you just not bother, or what? At the uh, time? At the time, no, I'm sure I read his... I'm sure I read no, that, but not his, but I mean other stories. Did you actively seek out and read how media had covered this? Uh, well, I mean, I read the New York Times. I mean, the New York Times had talked to me. Yeah, I read in Boston Globe. I, mean, I certainly paid attention to how it was covered, but I w not so much from thinking about uh, thinking, judging the coverage, but you know, certainly as, uh, having some interest in uh, in how um, what the national reaction was, and of course, it had some bearing on how the issue is going to play out because, it, as I said earlier, a number of states and a number of elected officials then began to use that as a as a political issue to, to uh, promote uh, state constitutional amendments in states to, uh, prohibiting same-sex marriage. Right. Let's talk about your book. Who uh, was Richard Henry Dana? Uh, Richard Henry Dana Jr. was a uh, 19th century lawyer and author. If, if he's familiar at all to any of your listeners, uh, it would probably be your older listeners who are familiar with Two Years Before the Mast, which is really a classic of American literature. Dana, when he was uh, 19 years old, a Harvard dropout, uh, signed on as a common seaman, uh, though he was from a Boston Brahmin family, uh, to, uh, his family never would have spoken to common seamen, uh, and shipped uh, uh, around Cape Horn to California in 1834. Uh, spent two years on the coast uh, there hauling hides and came back in 1836 uh, and wrote uh, this remarkable book that uh, Melville, even Herman Melville was a friend of his, said was unmatchable. Uh, but my story, my biography of Dana really picks up when he returns uh, because he returned uh, to a culture in which uh, he had... Um, a future that would have made him uh, certainly a senator, maybe president of the United States, uh, uh, because he had an extraordinary. He was an extraordinary lawyer. Uh, he came from a already. He was a fifth generation Harvard graduate. Uh, in eighteen, uh, his family was one of the, the oldest, uh, except for maybe for John Adams's family, uh, with whom he were very. They were very close. Uh, he had a, a path laid out for him that would have led uh, him to. Uh, to rise to the top of his uh, le the legal profession and his political career, but he had learned from his uh, his voyage uh, when he saw his, his he saw his fellow sailors flogged. Uh, I think that touched him to uh, in a way that shaped the rest of his life. He uh, he really disliked uh, seeing human beings demeaned by people in authority. And when he came back, uh, he, he began representing uh, sailors uh, in, in uh, cases against uh, ship owners. Well, the ship owners were all from his culture. They all lived on Beacon Hill. That's where uh, Dana eventually lived. And uh, he put himself right immediately on the, on the wrong side as far as the best people were concerned. But the extraordinary part of that as that story began to unfold, uh, was the extent to which uh, the Boston establishment uh, 
uh, in the decade running up to the uh, Civil War, became really a pro-slavery community. And that's not my phrase, that's Charles Francis Adams Jr.'s phrase. Uh, I think the history we've told ourselves uh, is a much much better history than we deserve. That is, uh, you know, as Northerners, and particularly as Bostonians, uh, we, uh, we sort of... Uh, white whitewashed <laughs> more than one meaning to, to that I think that, that our, our, our our history to uh, and, and have forgotten the fact that uh, northerners in Boston and cer- certainly the Boston establishment in the run up to the Civil War were hand in glove with southern slave owners because uh, the southern the cotton picked by the slaves was needed for the northern mills and uh between 1850 and 1860, there was a concerted effort uh, led by Daniel Webster uh, to arrest fugitive slaves in Boston and, and uh, to send them back. Dana, as a young lawyer, he's only in his 30s then, uh, represented fugitive slaves and their rescuers, those, those that tried to rescue him, at a, at a point in time where uh, that put him uh, in a situation that, uh, when you asked me about threats, he really had threats. He was assaulted. He was boycotted. Uh, and so his 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 career as he from that moment on was one that um, I found it fascinating, and I hope the narrative is, if I've written it correctly uh, and captured it, uh, I think you'll find that readers would find Dana's life uh, uh, pretty extraordinary. Because he, you know, one thing to remember when you're writing someone's life. Um, we know how it turned out, but right. they don't. They don't. Right. They don't right. know. They don't know how it's going to turn out. Yeah. So when he took some of the decisions he took, uh, at the time he took them, they were really courageous. And then he went on to become. Uh, he argued the Supreme Court case, the prize cases that uh, upheld uh, Lincoln's authority to carry on the, un- the Civil War. Had Dana not participated in that case, I think the Civil War would have ended up in a compromise settlement if, if, the, if that case had been lost. He prosecuted Jefferson Davis for treason, uh, though he thought the prosecution ought to be uh, dropped and finally persuaded President Johnson to drop it. So he had an extraordinary life as a, as a lawyer, and I hope in the book I've captured not, his, not just his life as a lawyer, but the, the personal tension that really was part of him, um, because he always wanted to go back to California where uh, he spent his earlier days and, and uh, was sort of trapped in the, uh, the Boston uh, society of which he was, uh, which he never left. What, what was it about this guy that appealed to you? I think his uh, his his courage. I mean, uh, his uh, his willingness to stand up to um, extraordinary uh, pressure, and uh, and then again, just his 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 human uh, his human side. I mean, if you've read. Uh, for those who've read Two Years Before the Mast, I mean, it's a wonderful uh, description of, uh, of of the California coast and uh, uh, and of uh, the, the uh, sailing around Cape Horn and uh, life in California in 1834 and 1806. But it's more than that. I think you get a real sense of who Dana is. And uh, he also left a journal that I, I relied upon that shows his human side and uh, the way he struggled with these uh, with these kinds of issues, I mean, he really never left the Brahmin society in which he, of which he was a part. And I think that made his his uh, the tension in his life even the more extraordinary. But uh, 
because he continued to oppose the so-called best people, which of which uh, I think he had two views. I mean, he uh, believed there was such a thing as best people, but uh, he couldn't find it in the mm. it, it, when the issues uh, became really significant. What do you think? What was it about the flogging that so offended him? Uh, it, it was, uh, I think. The meaning of human dignity. He just he just described it as uh, uh, it's not the sting. It's it's uh, uh, the the debasement of it. And I think so. I think one of the one more one of the ways he looked at the he was not an abolitionist. And one of the ways he looked at uh, slavery was in really in personal terms. In other words, he had it. it he could, he could not stand to see uh, someone demeaned by someone in authority. And there's a episode I recount in the book where the federal prosecutor uh, mocks the uh, an African American lawyer uh, who is certainly the only uh, black lawyer in Ma- in Massachusetts at the time, and probably the only African American lawyer in the country at the time. Uh, leads the courtroom in laughter to uh, the federal prosecutor. Uh, sort of mocks this lawyer and and Dana immediately challenges uh, the federal prosecutor because mm-hmm. he just thinks it's again uh, something that uh, demeans uh, human dignity and I think he th- I think he saw slavery in very personal uh, terms that that is you know leaving aside the issues of uh, equality and all the rest it was just uh, he could not stand to see those in authority uh, use their power and, and of course, there was no more abuse, no greater abuse of power than the the abuse that occurred in in Boston in the eighteen fifties, where the, the federal government and the state government and all the powers that be were were uh, seizing uh, African American citizens in out of Boston and, and shipping them back into slavery, or trying to anyway. Did um, Richard Henry Dana uh, recognize the common humanity in people? <laughs> I think he did. I, uh, I mean, I think his. Um, uh, your, your question uh, has, I think, the uh, um, is a good one because yeah, I think it probably stems from the, the from something that I thought about when I wrote the book. Which, to what to what extent does this does his experience echo? Come uh, some of the, some of the themes that you know that. Uh, that are currently with us, and, and um, the extent to which uh, Dana himself, um, I think, stepped outside his class, out, stepped outside class consciousness, and recognized uh, common humanity was was really really uh, remarkable and um, very prevalent when he was in California as a young man. Um, he finds. Uh, he gets in a debate with one of his uh, shipmates who's as far as he knows uneducated and he becomes uh astounded at the at the his the sailor's intellect far, far exceeds anybody he knows at harvard uh when he meets the uh, sandwich sandwich islanders the uh he finds them to be um in terms of fellowship and honesty and integrity uh much greater than any uh group of folks he's met in in Boston so that inform that just gave him a broader view of humanity and I think that uh, certainly allowed him to um, 
served as his foundation when he came back and used his extraordinary skills as a lawyer on behalf of sailors and slaves. Do you feel any fellowship with this guy? Well, as someone said, all auto, uh, all by. Uh, all biography is a bit of autobiography, and I suppose there's there's some sense in that. Uh, but you know, Dana was Dana was extraordinary, extraordinary from all sorts of different uh, uh, perspectives. So, um, but I did I do admire him, and and uh, you know, I think I've I hope I've captured uh, he was not without uh, faults and frailties for sure, and I hope I've captured those as well. well tell me a flaw he had. Well, I think he. Uh, he he probably was uh he had no political instincts uh, that's not a flaw but i think the extent to which um he failed to recognize uh at all what was necessary to uh advance his own political uh future really uh comprom- it, it it undermined uh his capacity to move to a level where he could have really affected national politics. He ran for Congress. Um, his, his choice of his his political timing was never good, and he didn't think there should be political timing. And so he had sort of an 18th century view of politics that probably uh, was uh, Id- idealistic to a fault. So I think uh, I admire. On the one hand, I admired to him. I, I admired that, but yeah. it was frustrating as well. Uh, Jeff Amistay will be speaking about his book, Slavish Shore, 2.30 uh, at Bridgeside on Saturday. Bridgeside right down the road here. We go to Stowe. Don, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Don. How are you? Good morning, Mark. Thanks for taking my call, yeah. Jeff. Good to hear your voice. Uh, my best to Susan as well. Hi, Don. Question if I might change uh, topics here, by the, but that's a wonderful description of Dana. Uh, those of us, as you say, of our generation would remember it well. But if I can turn to court appointments in Vermont, uh, Jim Douglas, I had a chat about this one day, and he felt hampered by the current system, which, as I understand it, the Bar Association recommends a certain group of attorneys uh, when there is an appointment to be made. But the governor who makes the appointment is hampered uh, the way I see it, in that he cannot publish the name, the names of those who have been recommended and ask if the public has any comments on any of these individuals. Apparently, as I understood it from Jim, this was totally forbidden to him. And to me, that really uh, makes the whole process far too secretive. Okay, let me, let me if you have uh, any thoughts on that. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, I, th- I think you accurately described the process, at, at least as I understood it uh, when, when I participated in it. Um, I do think, uh, on the f- speaking now on the federal side, that they may have opened that up a little bit, uh, going exactly to the uh, to the issue that uh, you're you're concerned about, because I was again I've uh, spent more time in Boston than in, in Vermont in the last decade or so, so I've. I'm not as familiar with the selection process now as I as I used to be, but on the f- on the federal side, I uh, I noticed that uh, when the uh, nominees the potential nominees for the second circuit, the federal the federal court, uh, when that process is going forward, in, 
in fact, the, the names of the candidates that were being considered was was made public. Now, I don't know if that was uh, if that's a new part of that it had its opened up the process, or whether in fact that came about as as a as a, as a leak. But um, uh, certainly, there's you know the, there's an argument to be made. There's what, what there's an argument to be made for opening that up, and and uh, but I think that you know uh, certainly. Uh, Jim Douglas accurately described the Vermont process as as it, it stood then and as I think stands now. Um, one other question relating to that. Uh, uh, Jim Douglas wrote a biography or autobiography recently uh, in which he questioned the appointment of Beth Robinson to the Supreme Court. Did you read that by any chance? Uh, no, I know that Jim was... Uh, I, uh, I, we were both writing books at the same time, so his sounds... Uh, so I haven't read his... And, uh, I will have to, before I can ask him to read mine, I suppose. Well, he said that she was not the most qualified person at the time and raised and said it was a political appointment. Well, I, are you asking for my, for my opinion of, yeah. of uh, Jim Douglas' opinion? Uh, I, I think it, uh, Beth Robinson is very qualified, and, and, uh, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you for having me. Good luck on Saturday. Thank you. Uh, Jeff Amistoy is the author of Slavish Shore, a book about Richard Dana, a 19th century Boston lawyer. We're going to uh, hit the news here. We'll be back right after that. AP Radio News. I'm Rita Foley. In court. This